Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Magnolia Beef and Seminary has top quality beef products that are raised right here in Mississippi. They also have fantastic gifts for every age. For the best beef in Mississippi and so much more, visit Magnolia Beef and Seminary or find us on Facebook. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder and fine music on this rather rainy Friday Eve. Good grief. The monsoon is upon us. I just looked outside about 10 minutes ago and I, I must have picked the absolute worst time to try to walk inside because I had to use my umbrella like a shield. It was raining sideways. <laughs> it, uh, it is raining a torrents, as they say. That's what we got coming down. And the parking lot is accumulating water. It's a couple of inches deep, it seems like, because it's raining so dang hard. So, Oh, yeah, there were several rain records broken yesterday. Okay. In the state? In the state, like for example, in the Jackson metro area, I think Jackson's rain record, yeah, was set in the twenties, and it was just a little over two inches. Wow! And if I'm not mistaken, the rain gauge yesterday had just a hair over four inches. Man, oh man, a whole lot of wet stuff. Well, let me see if I can get this straight. We went from brutal heat, drought conditions right into the ice and snow, <laughs> and now the monsoon. And you're in shorts. Well, yeah, it's going to be close to 70 degrees today. <laughs> okay. What about these folks I see that have got shorts on and like four layers of parka on the top of their body? Yeah, that doesn't really make much sense. <laughs> With the hoodies, you know, and the, all that stuff. Like, I'll do a long sleeve shirt or a long sleeve pullover with shorts, <clears throat> but that's... It's usually only for appearances, it's not for temperature. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, it is what it is. Uh, the weather is moving through, and we got more rain in store for us for the remainder of the day. Is that correct? And then tomorrow, and starts to taper off a bit, but that's where we are. Meantime, we got lots of news going on in the state of Mississippi, and nationally as well. I know one thing, Tesla, the EV automaker, and of course that company is certainly Elon Musk, I should say, not Tesla specifically, but he got his fingers in lots of pies, such as SpaceX and other endeavors. Tesla is down today $22. It's getting beat up because their uh, sales performance, profit performance, not that strong in their earnings report yesterday. And more importantly, 
the guidance, the outlook provided by the company, uh, not too rosy. And you wonder if that's got to do with the market not not really warming up and adopting EVs, passenger EVs, the company makes. But also China is uh, really ramping up EV production, and they're undercutting Tesla and other companies uh, significantly. So, but Elon Musk says that they've got lots of things in the works, including a very low-cost entry-level Tesla EV that is designed to compete with those being offered by China. So we'll see. But this is just part of uh, the natural evolution of companies who are engaged in rather new, novel technologies, which is what this is uh, when you look at it. Now, don't get your panties in a wad here, folks, about how that might affect the EV factory just announced in Marshall County, Mississippi. And I know a lot of people have legitimate concerns about the demand and the viability of EVs. A couple of points that need to be made is the passenger market is totally different than the commercial market. This factory in Marshall County, Mississippi, is a joint venture of four companies, three of which are domestic companies who are engaged in the manufacture of commercial vehicles. Uh, More specifically in this case, the big tractors that pull 18-wheelers. I guess there's 18-wheelers, including those on the tractor, but these would be the the giant trucks you see on the highways that move our stuff around the country. Uh, I believe it's Freightliner, Peterbilt, and Kenworth, because we got Cummins, Packard, and Daimler. Those folks manufacture. Those are the joint venture partners domestically, and they have a plan to start manufacturing uh, these big truck tractors, uh, electric, as electric, powered by electric uh, batteries. At least partially. Yes, yeah, somewhat. That's right. It's uh, the, the hybrid model still will apply here. It's a different market. And I have confidence these folks know what they're doing. And, of course, we're four years away from production. A whole lot's going to happen. We can't even imagine. Can't imagine what's going to happen between now and four years with respect to battery technology and ways to charge batteries and so forth. A a lot of innovation, a lot of improvement, a lot of enhancement. Um, Also, there is a Chinese company, as you know, that has a 10% stake in this joint venture, and a lot of folks had concerns about that. They're providing some technical expertise. That's why they've been brought in. They do not have a controlling interest and really really, really can't wield any power over anything of significance that might be a risk to Mississippi or the country because they have a 10% stake. And they're there for, uh, really for technical expertise as part of this joint venture. But this is to be expected. I mean, the government was forcing these EVs, passenger EVs in particular, on the market before we're ready for it. 
They're not ready for prime time. I agree. I'm not ready to buy one. You and I have talked about this. You've said, hey, look, if you know, for my normal commute, this would be perfect. If I don't have to stop at the gas station, I think a lot of people. But it'd have to be a pretty dang good deal. I'm not spending $40,000 on something that can only go 200 miles a charge. Well, there you go. I agree. So when we get to the point where you're effectively not giving up anything from your current situation, then they're viable. Hey, wait, you're telling me everything is the same, yet I'm saving money? I'm down for that. I mean, that's... Which a lot of people assume that would be extended charging, extended ability to travel, whereas if they get to a point where they can make the batteries at scale for much cheaper, I'm not going to say you're buying a disposable car, but if you get the price point down way below what it would cost to get a gas car... yeah and it only goes 200 miles, then that... You start thinking about yeah, that, it. Yeah, that's a little bit easier to weigh. Yeah, it's it's a, a, a comparison. I mean, it's, you'd have to uh, just run through your mind. And because con- that doesn't consider. require a breakthrough. Agree. A breakthrough is required to make batteries that will allow for charging and for longer distance travel. Yes. You uh, don't need a breakthrough to just get better and more efficient at making the same thing. Totally agree. And, you know, we, we talked... You recall a couple of weeks ago about uh, how AI and quantum computing is being used to identify materials that could be more efficient, more cost-effective, more appropriate uh, in the manufacture of batteries that traditional computers and in, in research can't uh, can't really conduct. Uh, those sorts of in, uh, investigations and determinations at the speed the quantum computing and AI can. So I, I caught an article, you know, I subscribe to MIT Technology Newsletter, and, it, and it's fascinating uh, to see what's going on. They're, they're pretty much on the so-called cutting edge and out in front of reporting uh, breakthroughs in, in various areas of technology. So there was one reported yesterday about the discovery of nickel, I think in Minnesota, like a giant repository of nickel. And that is one of the ingredients in EV batteries. I think, what is it, nickel, cobalt, lithium, uh, lithium, yeah. It's about four different materials, as I recall. Uh, So they've discovered that America's densest nickel deposits, yeah, in Tamarack, Minnesota. And it's overgrown with just grass and pine trees. Now, I don't know how you go about discovering minerals below the surface like that, but regulators are seeking to approve this mine. They think that this could be a starting point on what this this mining company says would become the country's first total domestic nickel supply chain, end-to-end supply chain of nickel running from... The bedrock, essentially underneath the surface where this nickel is stored, all the way to the manufacturing facilities and plants where these batteries are made. And it's a good chance that the factory that's going to be built in Marshall County, Mississippi, will be one of their customers for this material. It's just fascinating to see, but another example of how human innovation solves human problems. We're stepping aside for a break. We've got Representative Kevin Horan at 11.05 and Senator John Horn at 12.05. The House passed the citizen-initiated ballot measure process. We'll talk about it. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. of the Rhythmics bumping us into this segment here on uh, Middays. We're appreciative of uh, your joining us today. Let's see, Thomas and Greenwood sent us a morning uh, gentleist. Uh, uh, pardon me, a morning gentleman. I was reading something else. What is this, Thomas? Boomers, yes, yeah, socialism is awful. Me, yeah, which is why we need to get rid of Social Security. Why do you hate me there, Thomas? I'm a boomer. <laughs> I'm in that category. Uh, good grief. Social Security is uh, something that has been in place, of course, since 1935. I, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe it as socialism. I mean, when you look at the classic definition of socialism, that's not it. I guess you consider the military to be socialism or roads and bridges to be socialism, or law enforcement to be socialism. I mean, you could go down the list. I mean, so what that tells me is that there, and I know, Rhino, you know folks like this, there are a lot of people out there in our country that really want zero government at the end of the day. Um, They're anarchists. They want none. I'm not in that camp. I, I don't think that makes any sense. I don't think that was our founder's vision. Now, do I believe that... Well, usually those people have convinced themselves that they've made it to where they are without the help of anybody else. Yeah, and that's not true. Right. Now, do I think that there are some in this country, particularly Democrats, that, that tend to hold up government as omnipotent and superior to individuals in the private sector? Uh, that want to take way too much credit for the success achieved? Absolutely. But it's also true that without uh, law and order, uh, without the assets that, by the way, our taxes pay for collectively, which help to create and establish the environment that allows private individuals to thrive, certainly businesses to thrive. Sure, I accept that. Uh, do we go overboard, and do we do we insert government too freely in areas where they should not be? Absolutely. We rail on that all the time on this program. So there's a happy medium here. There's so, somewhere between anarchy and too much. Somewhere in the middle of that, to me, is the sweet spot. Uh, we can sit here and gripe about Social Security till the cows come home. Guess what? It ain't going away. It ain't going away. My bigger concern is, how do we ensure its future viability? Because reality is, financial, the financial failure of Social Security is bad for everybody. It's bad for the world, honestly. So we've got to come up with something to fix that. And as you know, it's a political hot potato. Not many people will talk about it. 
I did, by the way, catch one of the Libertarians' favorite, Senator Rand Paul from the great state of Kentucky. And he was talking this morning about the border. If you haven't heard, folks, there's there's a standoff, if you will, between Governor Greg Abbott and the federal government. And he's issued a statement basically declaring that the Biden administration is in violation of the Constitution by not sealing the border. I agree with him. And he said, and you know this situation where he started to install a wire, Razor wire, yeah. Razor wire, thank you, to to just protect the border and serve as a deterrent for those that are just surging across it, illegal migrants and the cartels uh, hosting them and escorting them, if you will. I think escorting's being a bit too nice. That's probably right. Uh, How how about... um, Closer to, say, trafficking. Okay. Trafficking is one way. I, I was thinking uh, more about them shaking them down financially as well, oh, yeah. which is a big part of it. So, uh, yeah, the Coyote says it'll be a thousand dollars to get you into the U.S., and then they give you you give them the thousand dollars, you get in whatever vehicle they've stuffed you into, and then they get about a mile from the border, pull everybody out, and go. It's going to be another two thousand. Yeah, if not, we're leaving you right here. And that's exactly what's happening, as you know. And then they die, unfortunately, including children. To a great extent. But nonetheless, surprisingly, the Supreme Court says that the federal government can, in fact, cut the wire that's being installed by Texas. This just happened, what, two days ago, I think. The ruling came down. Uh, the National Guard, I believe. So now Governor Abbott has uh, told the Biden administration they're in violation, and numerous other gov- governors, by the way, not ours yet, although I expect it to happen. Numerous other governors have sided with Governor Abbott and are standing in support of his action there, including Governor Glenn Youngkin of, of Virginia has announced his uh, support, declared his support for Governor Abbott's actions. So now we get um, action or, I guess, uh, reciprocation, if you will, response from the federal government where they're saying, well, we're, we're just going to seize control of the National Guard of Texas. So you got it going both ways, and I don't know what's going to happen, but it's not good when you got a state and the federal government at odds like this and having this, this sort of contention. Well, the Biden administration has nobody to blame but themselves. No doubt about it. They've defied Supreme Court decisions for the entirety of their existence. That's absolutely true. And and Governor Abbott is uh, rightfully pointing that out in the uh, the very short uh, statement that he issued. It's now, if you've probably seen it, folks, it's gone viral, but he makes it very clear that the president is, he said he has violated, I'm reading it now, his oath to faithfully execute immigration laws enacted by Congress. Instead of prosecuting immigrants for the federal crime of illegal entry, President Biden has sent his lawyers into federal courts to sue Texas for taking action to secure the border. And what they're talking specifically about is the installation of the razor wire at the border. And the Biden administration says, we're sending the National Guard in to cut the razor wire. They're essentially taking over, if you will, the National Guard. And so you're getting into this really complex 
legal situation is who really does have power and control over the National Guard. The Biden administration asserts it's them. Governor Abbott says that, that it's the governor in the particular state. So well, there is one law enforcement entity that Biden can't touch, really. What's that? The Texas Rangers. Yeah, and they've been they've been mobilized by the governor. Uh, unfortunately, they're not enough, as right. you know, and and they've got other work to do rather than securing the border, which is the responsibility of the federal government. It's really, I mean, it's the border of Texas between Texas separates Texas and Mexico, but the reality is, it it is the U.S. border because it separates two countries, not two states. That's a totally different situation. I'll also offer this just thought. If Biden had just continued the Trump policies with respect to the border such that it wasn't an issue and truly did enforce those policies, if he hadn't passed the dumb American rescue plan, which fueled inflation, he'd be in a lot better shape going into the general. It's, as you said, it's his policies that have failed, that have caught the attention of voters, the price of everything I buys up, well, that's on you, Joe. You just had to step in and try to, try to attach yourself to a recovery that was underway that was really driven by government. And it was getting back, the, the economy was getting back on its feet and, and uh, moving towards full capacity just because people were opening up going back to work after you shut the whole place down, or many states did for sure. And then... It's what happens when you put scoring political points above making actual progress. Exactly right. Doing what's in the best interest of, of the country. The border deal. He, he just could not continue... Trump's policies, because they were Trump's policies, not because they were good or bad, because they were obviously good. The situation was totally different under President Trump at the border, big time. And now in polls across the nation, that issue has been elevated to uh, number one on voters' minds. They see what's happening. I mean, so visible. There's nothing more powerful than those videos and those images. And then it's in their towns. By the way, did you see this nut city councilman in Naperville, Illinois, about 30 miles outside of Chicago, that wants the citizens of Naperville to sign up to open up their homes for for the, uh, the swarm of illegals invading the, uh, the area there. Incredible. Now, I had a business operation in Naperville, a data center that we had acquired. By the way, that's a very upscale uh, suburb. I mean, it's a really nice area, 30 miles outside of, uh, of Chicago. And so it's, it's populated with affluent residents. This is crazy, crazy. Well, we're going to take a break right here. We're in the Element Well studio coming right back. Representative Kevin Haran at 11.05. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now. Go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything but stay over my blue suede shoes. Well, you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place. Well, do anything that you want to do, but not, uh, honey, lay off them shoes and don't you. 
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're in the Element Well studio. I did want to give a shout-out. I meant to do this yesterday to my good friend Steve Guyton. He celebrated a birthday yesterday. I know he listens to the program regularly. He uh, works very closely with our congressional delegation in uh, obtaining appointments to the military academies for students in the state of Mississippi. And we appreciate his service in that regard. He does a great job. So happy birthday, Steve. So we were uh, talking earlier about uh, this big EV project, $1.9 billion going to Marshall County, Mississippi, up along the Tennessee border. But then on the heels of that, a couple of days ago, the governor announces a $10 billion investment in Madison County. This is the one I've been teasing a little bit on the program. I'm really proud of the fantastic work by the Madison County Economic Development Authority team and uh, my colleagues on the board of directors of that organization, Uh, but most importantly, the local economic development leaders, the supervisors of Madison County played a key role here, the Madison, uh, pardon me, the Mississippi Development Authority. Also want to offer a, uh, a a bit of gratitude to Intergy who played a key role in securing this project as well, Intergy. And you'll find out more about that. In fact, I uh, talked to CEO of Intergy, Haley Frasakerly. He's been on the program before. Saw him Tuesday night, and we had a chat about it. And and I think there's more to come. I'll just say that, which is good news. And I, I can't emphasize how important it is that an area have adequate supply of power. When you got, Rhino, so many in other parts of the country that are making these rather forklift changes, if you will, to their power infrastructure because they've bought totally into the the idea of green power, which is not yet reliable and really difficult to produce at the capacity that society needs. We, we've got concerns about that. And so we don't have that kind of red tape, thank gosh. Here in the state of Mississippi, uh, Entergy saw fit to make the investments to accommodate such a project as this. And I, I can assure you that was key, key, key in landing this opportunity. By the way, it is expected to increase Entergy's power electrical output by a third, a third for this one project in the state of Mississippi. That's really kind of hard to wrap your head around. You think about their footprint in the state of Mississippi, I think it's about three and change gigawatts. This will take them to a little over four. That's massive. But that's what it's required to power all the infrastructure uh, on these two campuses. One, of course, at the mega site in Madison, just south of Canton, and the other in the Ridgeland area, not far from where we're sitting. We'll be able to see it from the highway once uh, the project is complete. There will be multiple buildings, if you will, at each site. Really great news. And, and of course, once again, Rhino, we see arraignment in the public square of these projects, is one way to put it, by those who just bring up all you see series of what aboutisms is kind of what it looks like what about this what about that what about this and and i respect that but you need to do a little homework is all i can say 
You're you're not on not quite as respectful. I don't respect the nitpicking and bad faith. <laughs> Just because it's a Republican majority that is going to get the credit for it, you have people on the other side that are arguing in bad faith with dumb arguments. You're right, but and when you provide any refutation to their stupidity, they just double down on being dumb. That's a shame. But let's be honest. There, but folks, that's the reason they vote Democrat. Okay, but let's be honest now. There are folks on the right that have expressed their concerns oh, yeah. and as well and their criticism, and and everything I've seen thus far is not rooted in fact. I'll just put it that way. Um, I've seen people, I've heard people, honestly, who have expressed concerns about other power bills going up. In fact, it's just the opposite. There's no substitute for the economies of scale. And it applies in the production of electricity as well. And I had a conversation with Mr. Forsackerley, the CEO of Energy, about this. Uh, this came up Tuesday night. And it, it makes total sense. Total sense. So essentially what you got is you got one giant customer that essentially provides the rationale for energy to make this investment because they're going to consume a lot of power and pay them for it. And that investment expands their capacity and just distributes their risk and their cost. Because there's a very high, as you can imagine, there's very high fixed cost associated with generating power. But if you can increment that and keep your fixed cost basically in line, that, that is the magic of producing profit. I mean, that's the model to produce profit. Uh, when you can scale an organization, and with every additional dollar of revenue, you're not having to increase your fixed cost, only your variable cost. That's how you make money, guys. That's how it works. And that's kind of what's happening here. It's not kind of. It is what's happening here. And then there have been some that expressed concerns about the investment in water infrastructure. There's a wastewater component, and and there's a a potable water uh, component as well. And folks have expressed in Madison County about that uh, because there is a loan from the state that's going to uh, capitalize uh, that investment, that project. But when you look at the ad valorem taxes paid in the county to the school district, cities, it's massive. It's like way more than that amount. Massive. Uh, so it's incredibly good news for the state of Mississippi. And, uh, and again, I, I give credit as well to the governor. I've said it before that that's one of the things that I have been pleased with about this governor. He's hyper-focused on economic development. He, he understands. He gets that's the way to, to really uh, make meaningful, positive impact on the state of Mississippi, the entire state of Mississippi. Totally gets that. And I think he's been uh, really very good as a governor in that arena, in that realm. Uh, I can't think of anybody, honestly, that has been any, any better at it. And we've had some pretty good governors with respect to that. But uh, Governor Reeves has has just really been a champion for economic development, and he's worked very well with economic developers, with MDA. All good stuff. So we've got, we've got uh, a ballot measure bill, something we've talked about quite a bit on the program. Where's our good friend Ben from Madison? He talks about it all the time, and uh, I feel like we've been fairly consistent and diligent in asking all those from the legislature about where they see that going. So we have a bill 
You probably saw it, Rhino, that passed the House and is being transmitted to the Senate. There's a great article, by the way, at supertalk.fm entitled House Passes Ballot Initiative Bill That Poses Restrictions Higher Signature Account. That was authored by our news director, J.T. Mitchell, published yesterday. You can find it again at supertalk.fm. House current, uh, pardon me, House Concurrent Resolution 11, authored by Representative Price Wallace. He's a Republican from Mendenhall. Also, Representative, Pro, uh, pardon me, Fred Shanks, involved in that process as well. Representative Wallace chairs the Constitution Committee. And so here's the deal. Here, here's the basic overview, the key points of the legislation. 8% of total qualified voters, or 166,000 signatures, would be required based on the 2023 election. That's because it is based on um, the number of voters that were registered at that point. So that's a change from what presently exists in the Constitution, which requires 8% of the voters who cast a ballot in the most recent gubernatorial election. So this is a bit of a change here. This, this increases rather significantly the number of signatures required. Uh, I'm just guessing here, have, have no evidence of this, haven't had any conversations with anybody. This is in an effort to get some traction in the Senate, where this bill, historically, such bills, our resolutions have died in the Senate, and that's been the key sticking point, the number of signatures. So my guess is they're trying to get some, the conversation going and, and get some, uh, some support in the Senate to push this over the, uh, the finish line. It passed on an 80-39 final vote. Democrats vehemently opposed the legislation due to the restrictions set forth, and we will review those after this break that is upon us, we got another segment in hour one of middays at 11.05. It's Representative Kevin Haran. At 12.05, it's Senator John Horn. We're coming right back in the Element Wealth Studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. You are tuned in to Middays, Super Talk Mississippi. We're in the Element Wealth Studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The Dow 
having already set a couple of records in the last week, off to the races again, trending upward. Now across the 100 mark, up 114 points today. The NASDAQ also doing nicely up 113. Microsoft through the roof, and there's been some some uh, projections and some price targets on Microsoft, that being fueled by their investment and expansion of artificial intelligence. Unbelievable how that technology I think is poised to really, really power high-tech stocks. I think we have six now with a market cap of over a trillion. I remember not so long ago, Rhino, when Apple hit a trillion. That was huge news. Seems like it was yesterday. Now we got six. And by the way, Microsoft, Apple, both hanging around the three trillion market cap based on the rise in Microsoft stocks today, stock today, it may be north of the three trillion uh, high water level there. That's incredible, unbelievable. I love it, honestly. Back to the ballot measure process. By the way, the ceasefire text line six zero one eight seven nine four three nine five. So we got one. It passed the House as we just uh, shared with you. Eighty thirty nine, the final vote. I haven't checked the roll there, but. Mostly opposed by Democrats uh, in the House. So, a little bit of the details, and, and just for, uh, for a baseline, so you'll know, our ballot measure process as presently incorporated in our state constitution, that is, has, of course, been invalidated by the state Supreme Court based on honestly a math technicality that required the signatures for the measure to be equally distributed across five congressional districts. And the, and the Constitution actually did include the number five. Well, we don't have five. We only have four. So that came to light in a case a couple of years ago challenging contesting Initiative 65, which was placed on the ballot to authorize a medical marijuana program in the state of Mississippi. Well, the Supreme Court said, yeah, that don't work. We only got four congressional districts. However, back to just at a high level what the process uh, allows, as stated in our Constitution, propose, modify, or repeal. You can't do this. Pardon me. These are the restrictions. These are, these are the stri- restrictions presently included in our state Constitution. Presently. This is before the resolution that passed the House should be ratified by the voters. Propose, modify, or repeal any part of the state Bill of Rights. Can't do that. Can't put a measure on the ballot that would, that would do such. Amend or repeal any law or any provision of Mississippi Constitution relating to the public employee's retirement system, PERS. We talk about that all the time. Amend or repeal the Mississippi Constitution's right-to-work provisions. That basically says you don't have to join a union to work. That's what it really says. And so there's a stark contrast between the heavily unionized states where unions are very powerful that don't have right-to-work laws, although some of those have been uh, reversing. But in Mississippi, that has been the case for as long as I can remember. Modify the initiative process itself. So you can't put a measure at the ballot that would change what the Constitution says about 
the ballot process, the ballot measure process. All right, so that's, that is what exists presently in the Constitution. Now, House Concurrent Resolution 11 would amend it, and amend those provisions, uh, but some things carry over. You couldn't propose any new law or amend. So, by the way, the first thing is the House Concurrent Resolution, which passed the House yesterday, w- would change the mechanics such that the, any measure that goes to the ballot initiated by citizens would create, amend, or repeal statute, not the Constitution. The present, the present system that we have in place as enshrined in our Constitution only allows amending the Constitution. A lot of people voice concerns about having a giant medical marijuana bill, as you recall, inserted in the Constitution. So you can't do anything, again, this carries over the, to PERS. Um, you, you can't do anything that would uh, provide new or special or amend laws that would repeal local or special law. Nothing uh, that would allow uh, or pertaining to, is a better way to put it, abortion. Nothing related to abortion. Nothing that would appropriate monies from the state treasury. Now, that's an interesting one because that would severely limit a lot of what you can do. We're stepping aside for Fox News and Super Talk News. When we come back, it's Representative Kevin. And now. Another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays. We're coming at you live from the Element Well studio on this uh, rather rainy Friday Eve. <laughs> we welcome to the program now, glad he could be with us in person, Representative Kevin Haran. He represents District 34, which includes Carroll, Gradata, Holmes, LaFleur, and Tallahatchie County. Serves as the chairman of House Judd B. Committees. All that right? That that's represent? right. Okay. Some of that's right, some of it's wrong. Okay, well, update My new district is uh, Grenada, Yellowbush, and parts of Lafayette. Okay, no. and parts of Lafayette. That's now. Right. So Still that, number 34, but have different uh, areas. Well, you uh, don't have quite as many counties in your Correct. district. Correct. <laughs> well, that's pretty chopped up. But Large area, but not as many counties. So we got we, we to gotta update uh, just because we did redistricting. That's, that's the reason that all that's this changed in, in, uh, between then and now and the, and the, um, uh, the, the Terms actually that is in the session. So, That's all right, great well, that, that new district. Yeah, all right. So, appreciate you coming in, you guys. Appreciate uh, you having me. Yeah. So, uh, special <clears throat> session this morning, right? It is. We're in the throes of a special session as we speak, and okay. uh, hopefully, I'll get back in time to cast a vote. But if not, I'll get to vote in for oh, the yeah. end of the day. Okay, good. So, uh, it's a big deal. A ten big billion dollar project, uh, largest in the state's history. Very much so. Well, uh, I've been giddy about it and busting at the seams, and I know the governor has too, as he's been intimately involved for some time. And he has. He came to the Capitol this morning and spoke, and, and he's rightfully proud of this this project. And he ought to be an MDA. Also, did great work on this project. No doubt about it. Uh, and and please don't uh, forget about our local folks uh, at the Mass County Economic Development Authority. No what a no great doubt. team we have there. 
and it's just been uh, four, such an I honor. Think, I think they said four years in the making that this it has is going, been, and it's been the cooperative agreement by a number of, of uh, stakeholders, and they did a great job. No doubt about it. And I have also applauded <clears throat> Intergy, who played a key role here. Uh, and and you know, I remember Governor Haley Barber saying something uh, about this uh, several years ago. That and he was spot on. It's, ama- it's amazing how prescient he was that we're going to get to the point where to win economic development projects in the future, the ability to supply power is going to be critical. critical. And that's where we are. 100%. It's unbelievable. 100%. That's a a critical part of it. And I was talking to some members uh, in North Mississippi about some of the challenges we have in some of the rural areas of power and some of the economic development can come to those areas if we can get that power there for some of the smaller projects that we need to look at and try to get some of this stuff accomplished for them. So are we going to have a, a general session today as well, uh, or just special? I think we're just going to – we'll go back into general session afterwards, but I don't think we're going to be moving anything yeah. off the floor yeah. today. Well, if uh, that has to be postponed a day or two to get this done, I think it's, it's worth it for well sure. worth the effort, I promise you that, Gerard. <laughs> All right, so we were just talking – you probably heard us uh, – out in the green room before uh, you came on here uh, about this um, – this House Concurrent Resolution 11 that was Correct. shepherded by Representative Price Wallace. Right. Um, that Lively uh, debate engaged. That's what that's what I heard and and read some of the commentary. I actually tried to get up in the gallery yesterday, but man, it was packed. Did we have like the whole state of Mississippi in the gallery in the House over there yesterday appeared afternoon? To be, appeared to be. But, uh, good pretty, good reason though. Good that's folks. That's correct. Good yeah. people. Good yeah. People. Uh, so we got this thing passed and headed. Uh, down the hall there to, to the, the Senate. Senate. We'll see what happens on the other end of the hall. Yeah. And uh, I don't I don't know what their plan is, if they're going to slide it through as is or not. I haven't heard. I did not talked to uh, any members of the Senate. Normally I would engage in conversation with, with Chairman Sparks and some of the other ones that I deal with and, uh, regularly on legislation, but I have not had an opportunity to speak with them, see what their thoughts are. Okay. On. All right. Well, so just to kind of recap, we were sharing with our, our audience here, we preserved uh, some of the provisions of what presently exists in the Constitution, such as uh, no measure can uh, address PERS or, or change that up, amend that up, and uh, our right-to-work laws stay in place, can't Correct. mess with that. Uh, that's in place as, as well. So that got carried forward, but a couple of things were added, best I can tell. Uh, nothing related to abortion That's correct. could go to... Uh, the ballot. And then, let's see, I, I talked about right to work. Uh, I didn't really understand totally the the local um, provision, the, the provision that prevents anything that would, it, it, I'm reading from the, from the actual resolution, to propose any new local or special law or amend or repeal any existing local or special law. Does it just mean you can't go to the state to change something at the local level, Correct. essentially? I think some of that stuff that's passed local and privately that would affect those things, and okay. some of the local stuff is kind of, I think okay. that's the genesis of that, is to avoid anything that would do something, pigeonholing something that would affect us region of the state and i would also think probably that some of the stuff that we're passing for economic development you could not get into those local issues and affect those as well as local and privates okay what that, what that language would in, would in, include that as well and of course a, a, a big change uh in particular is that uh, this would allow citizens to 
make statutory changes Changes or establish new law. To general law. Yeah, just general general law that that could later, of course, there's some restrictions on that uh, in terms of time frame, be amended if necessary. necessary. And I think there's something that basically states if if something poses an emergency situation, the legislature could step in and Step in. If if something that passed, uh, and I... (laughs) If you look at a lot of times in California, they'll have a resolution that passes, and three years later, the legislature's going in and trying to fix it. Undoing it. Yeah, the proposition <laughs> situation they have out there. We're trying to avoid that, I believe, to avoid having a situation where we're constantly going back in and trying to get back on the ballot and try to fix something that the legislature could fix. Makes sense. Technical changes and things of that nature. Something, I guess, that is new relative to what exists in the, in the Constitution is that, uh, and I'll read uh, from the resolution that just passed yesterday, to uh, cannot propose any new law or amend or repeal any existing law that appropriates funds from the state treasury. That's correct. So that would indicate that um, Medicaid expansion, for example, which is something that you know has been poised to go to the ballot by those who want to expand Medicaid in our state, uh, a pretty extensive effort to do so that was ready to go until the Supreme Court says uh, you don't have a ballot measure process right. anymore. Right. Right. Uh, otherwise, I think that would have been uh, on the ballot. I, likely. Think, you're, I think you're correct. That so would have been on the ballot. As long as the state has to come out of pocket here to fund its portion of expansion, so, that wouldn't be valid. That is correct. As long as you're touching on things that would require appropriation by the legislature, by the by the state, then those measures cannot. Just basically general law that doesn't have anything to do with, with money is my understanding, with okay. the exceptions of those that are specifically. Listed. Well, I guess what what I didn't see and, and, uh, and I was a little confused about is there's nothing in here that I could tell that would prevent a measure that would change the revenue side of the budget. That is correct. But we, you know, we had that in the one two years ago. Remember, the I language remember. is a little different. A little it basically, different. and I'm I'm just paraphrasing here, summarizing, but it's something to the effect that nothing could be done that would essentially endanger the the financial condition of the state. Oh, the state, state of general effect. financial condition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this specifically focuses on spending, money going out, spending aspect, not yeah. revenue, not right. no money. revenue, not yet anyway. Yeah, <laughs> not till so well, may but, change on the Senate side. But I, right now, that it's it's not uh, it's not in it. So I guess you could, just thinking out loud, you could have something that uh, changes our tax law tax and our law. tax structure. But if it gets to the point where you got to appropriate, appropriate more money, money to, to cover it, cover then it, it, then it, it, it may um, this will be meet fun. itself coming and going. <laughs> this will be fun. We'll see. Uh, the spending aspect of it makes a lot of sense. The taxing aspect of it, I could see where it could create a problem for us if we're uh, cutting our money out that we need programs, things of that nature, general spending, we could uh, eliminate income tax, things of that right. nature, right? and see where that would head. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Well, as you know, the House Minority Leader, Representative Robert Johnson, just on the program, I think, last week, he was none too happy and uh, <laughs> saw some of his uh, comments. I, I don't know if you were present. when I, I, Did he take to the well and make these proclamations, or what happened here? Uh, he, did, he, he made comment. I mean... Chairman uh, Johnson, I call him Chairman because yeah. he was Chairman at one time, sure. and uh, he, he he has a position, and he spoke eloquently about his position involved thing. But yes, he he um, he's got some concerns, uh, and he also had concerns about the uh, the Marshall County uh, 
yeah. matters. I know well. he did. And, and yeah. so he's been quite vocal this session, for sure. He, he has, um, of course, representing uh, his caucus, the Democrat caucus That's there. Correct. But he, he had some serious concerns uh, about the process. He says, uh, I think I got it right, but now we have a bill here today that allegedly restores the right of the initiative process to the people, and in that bill it does everything but restore that right. It prohibits what you can talk about. It increases the signatures, and it says if the legislature doesn't like what you voted for, they can overturn it. That it doesn't necessarily say that, that they can overturn it. It just limits what can be placed on the ballot. It doesn't necessarily say you can overturn it. You can, uh, you can tweak it to a certain extent, okay. but overturn it, I don't think it quite says that. <laughs> well, let's dig into some of the other issues, if you can hang around sure. with us for a minute. we got uh, Representative Kevin Horan in the Element Well studio. We're coming right back. With Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Representative Kevin Horan. We were just talking about uh, the special session, so we just got an update. Rhino, can you share that with us, please, on the bills there? Yeah, the bills, the two bills, House Bill 5001 and House Bill 5002, using the special session numbering, have both passed the House with a 120 to 1 vote, and Senate Bill 9001 has passed the Senate with a 50-to-1 vote, so they are both being referred and uh, will probably be voted on shortly. Yeah, that's awesome. So, good news there. Good work. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so we were just uh, going through this ballot initiative process. you have any feel for what might happen down at the Senate there? I really don't. Um, I, I can't anticipate that there would be any major changes to the bill. Um I don't believe that they would – the topic we talked about earlier about yeah. affecting the ways and means aspect of it, I don't believe that they would change it to that extent, make any changes along those lines. I well, and we've got different leadership in committees. As you recall, last mm-hmm. year we had Senator John Polk who who, who made it very clear he, he opposed any any restoration That's correct. of the process. And so it really never got any traction there in the Senate. But we, we got uh, – Different folks in charge That's now. Right. Different places. Yeah. And, uh, so we'll see where that we'll goes. We'll see what happens. But yeah. I, I don't anticipate they would make any substantial changes. Anymore. Okay. Well, let's talk about your committee, Judd B. What uh, what you got in store for us there? Oh, oh Lord. Uh, a lot, <laughs> right? Well, it usually is a good bit out of Judd B. I anticipate we'll have a large number of bills assigned. I, I met with Commissioner Sean Tindall at Public Safety last week. He has an agenda that he, he has some things that he wants to get done. One of the topics we talked about 
and it's the mental health issue the law enforcement community over the last two or three years have come to legislators and and uh, and ask us to try to do something along the lines of <clears throat> providing for some type of uh, mental health uh, in the criminal justice system to identify these individuals that have mental health issues that happen to be in the criminal justice system early on as opposed to wait until they get in jail or <clears throat> in a situation where they can't get out of jail on bond or something that's costing these counties and municipalities a lot of money. And, and uh, Commissioner Tyndall and I talked about that as well as uh, his goal is to provide some type additional long-term uh, uh law enforcement training for some of these uh, smaller communities, municipalities, and counties, uh, continuing law enforcement training so we don't run into some of the problems that we all have seen in Rankin County, some things involving some not necessarily uh, good things that come out of some of the... Uh, uh, and, and a lot of that would be a situation where you could provide better training for some of the officers and also uh, a conversation we had about developing some type of internal affairs type of agency within Department of Public Safety that could reach out or a, a agency head in one of the counties could say, look, we're having a problem within our Sheriff's Department or Police Department. They could come up there and do some investigation, determine whether or not there's something they'd be looked into so we don't have a recurring event that happened out in Rankin County for yeah. some of the things. This terrible situation has occurred out there and hopefully, and that was something that but he talked to me about, and of course that would take at least two or three sessions to get that going. But he's mm -hmm. he's adamant that we need to at least get have some somewhere so some some of the agencies can reach out to somebody and say, hey, look, come up here and look, and see if we've got a problem. Up okay, here. that makes sense. And I think the citizens would be better served, and also the law enforcement community would be better served if we had some type of agency or sub agency under public safety that we could can make that available to, to, to those folks. Is there anything else that uh, Commissioner Tyndall or any other <clears throat> law enforcement um, authorities are, are asking for well, from your committee? One of the things we talked about and and something that I believe that we've got to address, and, and you know, our friends at the NRA, you got to be real careful when you talk about uh, gun rights, but we, we've got to do something uh, about the high-capacity large capacity guns that are being used in commission of offenses within our state. Other states are trying to address it as well, and, and hmm. Commissioner Tindall and I talked about it, and he said agencies have reached out to him that we need to do something about, on the criminal side, uh, uh, not necessarily uh, interfering with someone's right to own them, but when they're used in a crime, to maybe have some enhanced penalties for use of those high capacity okay. crimes, because you can do a lot of damage with the 30-round clip and a, and a gun in a community and do and, and that needs to be addressed is something we're going to have to look at and mm -hmm. I think he and I are on the same page with that. Well, it seems like there'd be an appetite for that. That's not restricting I think so. use. It's not. You just got to be careful. You know, when yeah. you talk about doing certain things, you know, there's some states that want to uh, place barcodes on every piece of uh, uh, clips, guns, yeah. and some. Some members, and I'm a gun owner, gun user myself, I hunt and fish like 95% of Mississippians, and I don't really want the government uh, in my backyard either. But on the other hand, uh, we need to be able to identify some of these uh, weapons and, and clips and, and switches, things of that nature, that are creating some problems, especially when they get in the hands of younger population and are used in, in, a, uh, in a terrible fashion. Yeah. 
What about, uh, Representative Horan, our, our prison systems, our parole system, our parole <clears throat> board? Do, do you think there's any need for some structural changes there? Well, that's a that's something we could talk about for three hours or four <laughs> hours about some of the changes that we need to do. What, and I think the last time I was on, I was, I was chair of corrections, and, yeah, and I'm no I longer, that. but yeah. I will still be handling some of that legislation with uh, Chairman uh, Curry. But I do believe that we're going to have to look at um, putting some money into what we call reentry as far as keeping people from constantly coming back into the system. And some of that reentry money is going to have to be what I call outside the gate and has to be in a situation where it's going to be in the court system as opposed to in the parole system. And I do believe that we're going to have to look at some of the administrative provisions in the parole board to see if we can move some things along and try to get uh, get better information about some of the individuals that may be coming up for parole deserving. Those that are deserving of parole need to be released. Those who are not deserving of parole are, are considered not necessarily released. Those who are not deserving of release, they need to be they need to be kept, even though they may be eligible for parole, the information needs to be provided to the parole board. There is a disconnect, it seems to be, between MDLC sometimes and the parole board about what information is getting to the parole board. I and, see. And it's just a, it's a very big, it's a big, uh, I call it the biggest corporation in, <laughs> in, in the state of Mississippi when you talk about all the moving parts uh, that we have. It seems like it's... <clears throat> Maybe more subjective than I think the average person kind of understands. Right. The parole laws, people don't really understand. When I was in the DA's office, uh, started in 1988 and left the DA's office in 2002, the parole law changed in 1994 through 1996. Prior to that time, just about everybody had eligibility. Yeah. Sex offenders, everybody had eligibility. We cut that back. Mm -hmm. uh, filing offenders, everybody had some type of eligibility. Uh, we changed that in uh, 1995 and again in 06. And as you well know, we have peeled back some of that in 2014. But what, what people don't understand is, is that you've got a situation where just about everybody, a large population of the inmates are eligible for parole, so you need to be able to identify those individuals. that are going to, They're coming out at some point in time. You need to have them. Suited for coming out into society, if at all possible, and that's where reentry comes into play. I know it won't necessarily cross your committee, but a couple of high-profile issues I think that uh, will be taken up. It's school choice week. School choice, I think, is is going to get some attention. You you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, I have I have four in school. I want them to go year round, all day, every day. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> brutal. No, uh, I think we're at a point in time we're going to have to look at the schools school choice issues um, and and be realistic about some of the uh, educational opportunities that some some of our population are not getting I okay. mean that won't uh, that won't get education parents want to put their kids in a good situation I think we're going to have to look at school choice I was when I first got in the legislature I was 100% against it. I'm not so much 100% against okay. some some hybrid school choice, maybe the pilot program to see how it works and kind of see where we are on okay. it. But I think it's going to be an issue that Speaker White, I think he's spoken before that he wants it addressed, and I think he wants it put on the table to see what 
what ideas can come out that everybody can hopefully live with. That's my impression as well. Right. I think he wants to uh, get all the issues on the table right. and just have a a, a meaningful debate that's, about it. And that's, that's nothing that wrong do. with that. Absolutely. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing. Totally agree. Well, I appreciate you coming in, as always. I appreciate always. you having me. I'm, yes, sir. Uh, I appreciate you, uh, the work that you do and being information provider to the community, and you do a great job. Well, I appreciate, appreciate you that. having me. Thank you. Representative Kevin Horan has been our guest here on Middays. We're stepping aside for a break. Coming right back. Not much left but the floor. Nothing lives here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone that's rare earth hey big brother man when was that 70 71 something like that maybe 60s 71 71 Woo! <laughs> we're back with you in the element well studio we appreciate representative kevin haran there was a question jim in the delta what committee does mr Haran, Representative Haran, Chair, it's Judd B. in the House. House Judd B. Let's see, we got uh, some other text here on the ceasefire text line. How about keeping violent offenders locked up, says Stephen from Starkville. Well, you know, that's just all based, I hear you, that's all based on our laws. And, of course, the parole board uh, takes lots of factors into consideration. Uh, I do think, are there not, Rhino, some offenses for which one is locked up without the opportunity for parole uh, permanently, if I'm not mistaken? Isn't there such? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Capital offenses. Yeah. Uh, Home defense. uh, I'm fine with that, but don't tell me an outstanding citizen that I can't have or use one in home defense. Home defense, I will go to jail under this law. Well, that's not what I heard the representative say. Uh, I believe what I heard him say is when they commit uh, offenses. So if you're in your home and you're using it uh, for protection, uh, I don't think that would be considered an offense. I mean, I, I, sus- I suspect it su- should such an incident happen, regardless of what weapon you used. There may be some case that somebody brings to court. Um, but in general, in the state of Mississippi, I think you're protected. Right, if you're if it's done in self-defense or defense of your um, your body or your property there or that of your family, Joe and Ponit- uh, pardon me, John and Ponitok says just enforce the law. And again, I I didn't hear anything that the representative suggested. And by the way, he pointed out that this is being uh, advanced by law enforcement. The the this issue 
to try to perhaps enhance the punishment for use of these weapons in the commission of a crime, is what he said. So this is being driven by law enforcement that uh, clearly sees this perhaps as a deterrent uh, from such offenses, to pr protect against such a, a defenses. Has the governor said anything? I don't know what he's talking about in Stone County. Do you know anything about that? I don't even know how to pronounce the word. In Viva? There. Yeah, what's that? Uh, that was, uh, I'm trying to get the numbers right, one and a half million dollar federal grant. Million? From, yeah, a million dollars. Okay. To build a hundred and $80 million facility or something like that. It was in 2019. It was something that was a part of a 2018 budget bill. And they had an announcement that they were ramping up production. I want to say it was a year, year and a half ago. And then they have run into financial problems as a company. Because what they do, it, it's a wood pellet plant. They take wood. Okay. They say it's waste wood. Although, from what I understand, you have to include hardwood in the waste wood to make the pellets. And then they sell the pellets to Europe to be used in coal plants instead of coal because they claim it's cleaner. But really what it comes down to is they're in financial trouble. They've kicked their CEO out, and their their stock is tanked. Okay. Gotcha. So, but uh, in reference to has the governor said anything, well, it, it happened before he was governor, and it's a federal grant. Okay. So I, I don't know no state really why he would comment on it. No state involvement, essentially. From what I understand, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So looking at the Dow, it um, is headed toward the unchanged line now. It, it's paired back much of the gains this morning, now up 10 points. The NASDAQ up 36. Both, were, both indexes were north of 100 when we reported them earlier on in the program. Not sure exactly what's going on. We did get a GDP report today. And, I mean, it's a little shocking, honestly. It indicates that the uh, economy expanded 3.1% from a year earlier, still strong consumer spending and hiring. So where's the recession? Where's the recession? It's, it's a weird uh, economy we have out there. And the, and, uh, the PCE, the, uh, that's a measure of inflation. Uh, it came out, and it says that now inflation, personal consumption expenditures, by the way, is the index there, that inflation, in accordance with the way the PCE is calculated, it's below 2%. So we have low unemployment. We have a um, inflation now that is starting to retreat, and we have an economy which is expanding. This is one of the things that's driving the markets, now, the president's going to run out and take full credit for it, of course. He had nothing to do with it. I maintain we'd even be in better shape had he not intervened with so many destructive policies. It uh, seems the House bills passed out of Senate committee and have been passed on the Senate floor. Awesome. So now just awaits the governor's signature. So Well, you still got the Senate bill that has to go through committee in the, the House, the and the House one. has to vote on it. Okay, yeah. yeah, thank you. So, but... I think it's imminent at this point, it's fair to say. With how quickly it's moving, yes. <laughs> yeah. Red letter and considering day. there have been there's, there's only been one nay vote in either of the houses. Okay. So the You got a, a one nay in the House and one nay in the Senate that has voted nay the whole time. Okay. 
but I still haven't found the full rundown of the vote, so I don't know who it is. Yeah, we'll get that published and pass that on to you. But uh, good news for the state of Mississippi. Big time good news. No doubt about it. I do totally confidently believe that this will be transformational for our state. I'm convinced of that. Doesn't mean tomorrow, but over a period of time, uh, this will become, I think, the springboard for way more investment, a lot more investment. And uh, it it, um, places us in an industry that, frankly, we do not have in the state of Mississippi. I mean, this is this is of global scale, and this will get global attention. There's absolutely no doubt about that in my mind. So, congratulations, Mississippi, big time day. Uh, ben from Madison, I know who has uh, been diligent in uh, asking questions about and tracking the ballot initiative uh, legislation and just the process in general. Says I may have misheard the rep, but did he say an initiative that has anything to do with money wouldn't be allowed? Would that just be revenue negative bills, or would that apply to revenue neutral and positive bills as well? So, yeah, actually, Ben, I I had read that directly from the legislation, and let's see, I'll I'll repeat it, and and in the in the bill itself, uh, the way it's structured. There's a heading that says, of a section, the initiative process shall not be used, boom, and then there's A, B, C, D, E. So the uh, part, let's see, E, so it's section 2, part E here, the legislation, uh, no legislation, or pardon me, let me read it again, the initiative process, the initiative process shall not be used to, in accordance with item E, to propose any new law or amend or repeal any existing law that appropriates funds from the state treasury. So what I was saying, Ben, if you caught the exchange there, is that this is a bit of a uh, departure from the bills that were considered and passed the House, I think, a couple of sessions ago, which were more akin to what you're describing. They they had to be kind of either revenue neutral, as I recall, right now, some sort of language that said you, you basically can't imperil the state's financial condition uh, fiscally um, through any measure. That's, you can't have a ballot initiative that says the state will cut a check for a million dollars to every citizen over the age of 18. As an example, yes, that's right. So a bit hyperbolic, is, but... But no, it makes but, the point. and that's exactly right. So this is a little different, Ben, from what I'm re- reading here. What I read is it. That's the most detail there is. Is that if it appropriates money, you you can't get it on the ballot. So that would seem to me to eliminate a wide range of of bills and measures. In fact, to the point where I'm not sure what would be proposed, and I and I'm. Trying to imagine. Uh, uh, you would wind up with a ballot initiative, and this is just off the top of my head, but it seems like you would wind up with a ballot initiative that would state the legislature of the state of Mississippi <laughs> shall develop a law that does X, Y, and Z if it involves appropriation. So by law, the legislature has to work on it. Yeah, so it it would mean to me that almost anything that would land at the ballot initiated by citizens would just be some sort of measure that just doesn't involve money. You know, just just and I can't imagine what that would be. I, I'm just trying to think think about that. 
I'm sure there's some stuff I just don't know. I'm not personally familiar with, and maybe some folks on on the text line could could uh, share with us what their thoughts are on that. Also, uh, Fred Shanks, Representative Fred Shanks, involved in this as well, said that Rhino's point is correct. Uh, for example, you can't just give a million dollars to MDA, as an example. Right. Just say, we want to give more money to that agency. Boom. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right. We are back. On Super Talk Mississippi. everyone it's middays we're in the element well studio today on in a mississippi minute with steve azar you'll hear an interview with blues musician angela easley who currently has the number one album on the billboard blues chart in a mississippi minute with steve azar it's presented by superior catfish remember there's catfish and there is superior catfish it's u.s farm raised catfish with homegrown flavor Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant. Go to superiorcatfish.com. Okay, so I, a couple of things. I got some clarification. Um, Representative Fred Shanks has been texting me during the break uh, clarifying this provision in the resolution that would restore the ballot initiative process concerning the uh, prohibition of any new law that appropriates funds from the state treasury. Okay, so I appreciate the representative for uh, clarifying it for me. So here's what it means. You can't have a measure that says just go give money, let's say, to an agency, a direct appropriation. Just increase the amount. Like education, right? We hear a lot of the the public education folks talking about that. that They just say, hey, go give them $5 million or something to that effect. That's a direct appropriation. I get that. However, if it's, a, if it's a measure that would establish a government program or a government service, for example, that would require appropriations, require money from the government to administer the program, that would be allowed. Does that make sense? Okay, so that I get it. Let's get the distinction there. Direct appropriation makes sense uh, relative to... So, yeah, he says it only excludes just a direct appropriations-only bill. Makes sense. Okay. I get it. Uh, Totally. Something else that somebody texted me about uh, was that I was talking about Medicaid expansion is something that those who who, uh, support it are poised, honestly, teed up to get a measure on the ballot. That's nothing new. It's been going on for a while. And, And that I said... It would be at no cost to the taxpayers. What I w- was meaning there is that the measure that has been previously proposed uh, by, say, the Mississippi Hospital Association, uh, their plan was that, that the Hospital Association would cover the state's portion of expansion. They had such a proposal to do that. There's, and that idea has been floated around. That's all I'm saying. So, 
Um, that's different, by the way, than a direct appropriation. But I've never said that Medicaid doesn't cost taxpayers anything, because even if that were the case, let's say that somehow some third party got involved and says, hey, look, we'll cover the state's 10% cost of Medicaid expansion. Federal taxpayers are still footing the bill for the federal portion, which is estimated to be at a billion dollars plus. You're still on the hook for that. Just like federal taxpayers are paying for the $6 billion the federal government sends to Mississippi for its Medicaid program. Same deal. You're still, yeah, you're paying for it. I've never said it's no cost. What I said was, when we thought that maybe you couldn't get a bill uh, on, or a measure on the ballot that uh, would require appropriations, I now understand they're talking about a bill that just says, go give this agency more money. That's not what Medicaid expansion would do. It would, it would create the program, or it would authorize or require the state, if you will, to participate in the program. Now, if a third party comes along and says, we'll cover the state's portion, well, then that is true. Then, this, then the state is not out of pocket from a taxpayer, state taxpayer, state taxpayer perspective. But on the federal part, which is north of a billion dollars, should the state expand Medicaid? Absolutely. Federal taxpayers are on the hook. That's different. Different pots of money. Federal taxes, state taxes. And that's because Medicaid is a program that is jointly funded by the federal government and the states. Federal government and the states. Something else along those lines, Rhino, I was talking about Rand Paul's interview. You know, the, the, uh, the point we've made countless times on the program about mandatory versus discretionary spending, how that shakes out, he actually went through that. I was so proud on uh, his interview today. He said the same thing we have. Hey, 70% is so-called entitlements, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, SNAP, a, a series of other benefits, plus debt interest. If we didn't appropriate a dime, just like we've said on the program, to the discretionary portion of spending, that being uh, the military and all the other agency complex, the federal government, we still produce a deficit. He said that this morning. I was so pleased to hear that somebody's finally speaking up and explaining the math here, which is so critical when you're talking about budgets. But I want to clarify, I never said that there was not a taxpayer cost to operating the Medicaid program, both today and as we have it in Mississippi, or should the state expand. I said some have proposed a plan where the state's 10% portion would be covered by a third party, or third parties. That was it. All right, we're stepping aside for a break, and when we come back, we've got Senator John Horn. Stay with us. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, it's middays. This is the afternoon portion of the program on this Friday Eve. We welcome now Senator John Horn. He serves uh, Hines and Madison counties. Also serves as the chairman of the Senate 
Housing Committee. Senator Horn, good to see you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Gerard, great to see you. So you guys have been busy this morning with this uh, special session to approve uh, the package for this big project in Madison County. That uh, yeah. So, Senator, does the location of the, uh, the project, the campus associated with this project in South Madison County there in the Ridgeland area, is that in your district? Yeah, if uh, most people may not know it, but the project is actually on two sites. And the northern site is on Highway 22, uh, which is in Senator Joseph Thomas's district, I believe. Uh, and uh, it leads into Senator Bradford Blackman's district. But the southern portion of the, of the project, which is um, the second site, is on will be on Canaline Road right at Highland Colony Parkway, which is smack dab in my district. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's uh, fantastic. So that's right. Two sites, uh, one a uh, little towards the north of the county, just south of Canton, and the other uh, in Ridgeland around where I-55 and uh, 220 uh, intersect there. And that's going to be an unbelievable deal for Madison County, for your district. And really, this is the size and scale and scope of a project, Senator. I think you would agree that's going to not only impact just Madison County, but the entire central Mississippi area. Of course, you represent Hines County, a good part, uh, portion of Jackson, and the entire state. Yeah, Gerard, this project could be transformative. I think... Um uh, what, one of the things that I, I was was told by the developers at, at MDA is that the presence of so much dark fiber that runs through Mississippi that has has ex- excess capacity is what really drove uh, their decision making on this project. Mississippi had, is a an intersection of dark fiber from all the north all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and and also. Uh, between uh, California and Texas, or, yeah. or but Atlanta and 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 Texas, I, I should say, and and so um, that dark fiber uh, is was probably the greatest asset that we had, and our ability to generate energy that is renewable as, as quickly as as we have demonstrated we can do. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, and so just for the benefit of our audience, I know several people are probably familiar with the terminology, but dark fiber just simply means that there, there are bundles of fiber, sheaths of fiber that are, are traverse the landscape underground. They just haven't been terminated. They're not in use. They just haven't been lit up, as we say in the IT world. Right. Uh, but they're there available. And you're absolutely right. Our geographic position makes us perfect because we do have uh, uh, fiber that runs north and south and fiber that runs east and west, uh, connecting, for example, uh, Atlanta and Dallas, where you've got lots of facilities to tap into that fiber and the carriers that will light that up So and provision it. So, yeah, absolutely. Big deal. Great deal. We just got informed that I think we're well on our way, right, with the uh, passing of uh, these measures in the House and in the Senate. Maybe something still outstanding there, but it, uh, by all accounts, it looks like it's headed to the governor's desk. Well, uh, it's it's um, we're recessed until two o'clock. Okay. At, at which point we hope that the House will have taken up our bills, and if that's the case, then yeah, the bills can go directly to the governor. Okay. All right. So we shall await that and look for a big announcement uh, later on on getting that thing complete. Yeah. 
and uh, off to the races. We're expecting um, maybe a, a um, uh, an announcement somewhere between two and two thirty okay. this afternoon. Okay, that's awesome. That sounds great. Well, uh, so what else you got going on down there, Senator? Of course, uh, we were talking this morning about this ballot measure process. Uh, the, a bill, a resolution, has passed the House. It's been transmitted uh, to the Senate. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader, Representative Robert Johnson, wasn't really too happy, wasn't too thrilled about the provisions of the bill. How do you think it's going to go in the Senate? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a little behind the curve on that, Gerard. I have not seen the bill. Okay. Um, and I don't serve on, on judiciaries, either, either the Judiciary Committees or the Constitution Committee. Okay. But um, I, 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 what I hear is that the House is going to, to try to, to provide a more straightforward bill and that uh, some of the, the um, committee chairmen who would be looking at it on the Senate side uh, may want to make it a little bit more more complex a process uh, to undertake. So we'll we'll see what what comes out of both committees. Okay. Or out, out of both chambers, rather. Okay. We'll look for that. So what else are you prioritizing uh, this session, Senator? Well, you know the issue of affordable housing is a very serious one in Mississippi. We don't have enough housing stock for our residents and, and folks who are living in substandard housing, there's a benefit losing out on because we're not doing or building as, as much housing. Developers could be doing more. But the cost of how the, the uh, labor issues around building houses, the materials have gone through the roof since the pandemic. And insurance has really become a, a, a nuisance of, of for uh, anyone trying to do affordable housing. So, so you have developers who could be doing more housing on one end, and you have uh, folks, the end users, who need better housing. So, I'm I'm going to be pushing for a low income housing tax credit to mirror the the federal low income housing tax credit. And it just incentivizes developers to be able to do this type of housing and, and make it make it where it, it's sustainable. Okay, gotcha. So, do you anticipate that this would be a refundable tax credit, so that even if a Mississippi taxpayer does not uh, have a, a a tax liability, doesn't owe any taxes, just based on their income and deductions and so forth, or they have zero taxable income, they would still uh, be eligible to receive this credit? Well, again, we're working out the details of it. That's one of the considerations that we're uh, is how can we allow it to we want it to be transferable and to be, be be sold, or do we want the, whoever buys the credits to hold on to them? Okay. So we're still working that part out. Okay, I'm with you. Makes sense. Uh, all right. Anything else you're working on in the housing committee, and and what else you're hearing in the Senate that it, it seems like is uh, well, going to get prioritized? A, a, a pet peeve of mine uh, in this metro area is illegal dumping. There are too many folks that are just using our countryside, our back roads uh, as as their their garbage pit, and so I want to uh, implement some stiffer penalties. To require the, the folks, if they get caught, they're going to have to clean that mess up. But they they also would risk uh, uh, financial penalties as well as jail time. Okay, interesting. 
Um, any, anything, uh, what do you think about school choice? You know, that's getting a lot of discussion, at least, underneath the dome there. Where do you stand on that, Senator? Um, I'm, I'm not, I understand the concept of school choice, and you, you, you allow a child to not be hindered by their zip code in terms of getting a good education. Uh, but the problem is well, our schools are, are largely underfunded right now. They're not doing as good of a job as they, they could be. But if the money were to follow the child, those those who didn't go to the new school would be damaged and I, I think um, harmed by the resources in an already poor district going to a, 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 another another district. So the jury's still out. I want to hear what what the what the argument is. But but in principle, I, I'm not in favor of taking public dollars and giving giving them to private schools. So if that's a part of the the, the equation, then we're going to have a debate debate about that. It seems like that is kind of the general sentiment, at least uh, in the Senate on the Senate side. I, I've heard the lieutenant governor state the same concern about the education savings account any, in any situation where public money would be used to fund a private education. Do you feel like that's kind of accurate, my analysis there? Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. All right. Well, we'll certainly see where all that goes. But uh, we certainly appreciate you taking a couple of moments here, Senator, to uh, call in. I know you're busy and you got to go, but really thank you for joining Middays. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you more and probably see you around the, uh, the Capitol, sir. Thanks a lot. I look forward to it, Gerard. Take care. Yes, sir. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. I'm in love with her and I feel fine. I'm so glad that she's my little girl. She's so glad she's telling all the world that her baby buys the things you know. the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We're in the Element Well studio. Thank you for joining us. Ricky in Aberdeen says, please increase fines for dumping bad problem in Monroe County. It, it, um, it's a bad problem everywhere, and I, and I know what the senator's talking about. I mean, Rhino, you ride around, especially the city of Jackson, there's so much abandoned property, and you, it's what you see. Oh, yeah. It's, it, it is ridiculous, and they're trying to get... a boarded-up building... With broken out windows and then just a big pile of junk. Yeah, where the parking lot used to be. Heck, I remember going to um, city council meetings uh, years ago at City of Jackson City Council meetings because we had business with the city and and them discussing it then. I mean, that was a dozen years ago. 
So I mean, the problems exacerbated since then because I think there's been more abandoned property. Some of that's public property that you see as well. Schools that have been abandoned, for example, that have closed. So I hear you, uh, Ricky. It's a problem. So uh, Thomas and Greenwood says, dark fiber, you mean all that fiber energy put in with welfare broadband money? I, I don't know what you're talking about exactly, uh, Thomas, with respect to energy installing dark fiber. You'd have to enlighten me on that. Um, we were, my company was a significant consumer of uh, carrier dark fiber and terminated fiber as well. In fact, in our data center in South Jackson there, several of the carriers co-located optical termination equipment on our floor. Uh, just because the building where our data center was located was purpose, purposefully located there in 1978, the vision of the Allstate Corporation back then, because they knew what the plan was to install a fiber ring to encircle the city of Jackson. And that was, that was planned across the nation, honestly, and almost every Metro of any size now has fiber rings. That's what delivers your internet, your voice communications. Ultimately, it ends up on those rings, which are configured in what's called a self-healing uh, architecture, meaning if there's a cut, they can, they can um, respond and recover from that and fail over in a way that you don't even know what happens. Where you get into a problem is the so-called last mile, the spur off the fiber. But if you're on top of it, you don't have that risk. And that's why Allstate had the wisdom to put that call center on top of the fiber ring back in the, in the 70s. So not sure exactly what Thomas is talking about there. I mean, carriers have been installing dark fiber. And there's some that are just in the fiber leasing business for years, for decades. Uh, so... Uh, but, of course, I guess you could also say that there has been, uh, you would describe it, I'm sure, as welfare, uh, money paid to road builders to build roads that we travel on. Uh, and again, I think that just goes back to what is the core function of government? Should they be in the transportation business, for example? Should we rely on government to build roads and bridges and airports and waterways and things like that? Um, you could ap apply that concept to virtually anything, right? So, and again, I know you pay federal taxes. Last time I checked, I pay a whole hell of a lot more than you do. Uh, and I understand, and as I pointed out, I get Medicaid is funded by the federal government. I was simply talking in the context of what might make the concept a uh, measure that would expand Medicaid eligible to be placed on the ballot. Uh, it, given this appropriations uh, cause or clause that prevents direct appropriations, as Representative Fred Shanks has now uh, clarified for us and explained to us, and we appreciate that. So uh, all I was saying is that there have been proposals. By the way, the $700 million uh, waiver just received from CMS, federal CMS, that's the agency that oversees Medicaid and Medicare in this country, that proposal sent to them, approved, not so long ago, that would inject some $700 million uh, into the hospitals from the federal government. Uh, to um, That was approved, as you know. That was just payment enhancements, really, payment reforms. There is a state component of that as well that is being covered by the hospitals, I want to say through 
uh, some fee or tax, I believe, they're paying, as I recall, like the bed tax or something. Uh, and all I'm saying is that there have been proposals to expand Medicaid in the state where there would be no cost to the state. And Medicaid expansion is different from traditional Medicaid in that uh, the state's cost is 10%. The federal government picks up 90%. Traditional Medicaid is based on the per capita income of the state. Uh, Mississippi having the lowest of the 50 states, it receives thus the highest federal match, is what it's called. Last I checked, it's about 78%, and the state picks up 22%, thus the roughly $6 billion cost of the program. Uh, cost uh, the state, this portion is just under a billion, and the federals is uh, north of, of uh, five, almost six. So that's just the nature of the program. I get it. Taxpayers pay on both sides. State taxes on the state's match, federal taxes on the federal match, no doubt. Uh, I just, of course, pointed out that finally somebody in the Senate's talking about this, the U.S. Senate, that being Senator Rand Paul, points out, guys, we're at the point now, we're in such poor fiscal condition that you can eliminate the entire lot of discretionary spending. Get rid of the military. Get rid of every federal agency. And you still can't balance the budget. That's where it is. So any talk about cutting spending from the federal level, I'm all for it. What exactly are you going to cut? Because if, you're, if your goal is to get to a point where you've got a balanced budget and you start paying down the debt, you've got to find roughly $2 trillion of spending unless you plan to raise taxes, which is the way the Democrats have always uh, approached this issue. We just need to raise taxes. They've said not a word about cutting spending. In fact, any mention of it causes them to become uh, agitated, <laughs> and they start attacking anybody on the right that even suggests the idea of cutting a dime, except military. They're all about that. Want to cut defense? Now, former President Donald Trump has said again that he thinks we need to spend more money on defense, by the way. He's also indicated that he is not for anything that uh, would change the the structure of Social Security and Medicare right now. So, I mean, as long as, as we don't touch that, we're going to continue to produce massive deficits because those programs are draining us, honestly. And something's got to be done. It's something we've talked about many, many times on the federal government. So, let's see. Should government give welfare recipients cell phones and Internet service like they do? Uh, well, that, of course, as we've talked about, this is from... This is from Thomas and Greenwood. No surprise. That, of course, as we've talked about, were based on programs passed into law, not Internet service, but the phones passed into law by President Ronald Reagan. The Link Up and the Lifeline programs passed in 1986. It was Barack Obama that converted that program to apply to mobile phones, wireless phones. Back in those days, it was for wired phones, because that's all we had in 1986. And the purpose behind that was to ensure that every address in the nation had access to a telephone for 911. That's when the 911 program was was building out and coming onto the scene. That was the underlying purpose of it. Well, well, Thomas, you can get into a long, drawn-out debate I think that the silliest point he tries issue. to make is, should government pay for Internet access in areas where it's not economically feasible to offer it? Yeah. Should government spend money on a road to a community where the tax dollars from that community will never pay for the road? Yeah. Yeah. It's infrastructure, dude. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, well, uh, I, um, I, I, I think it just warrants a discussion about the core function of government. No doubt about it. And, and that's where, really, it's all about. Um, so, back on this ballot initiative process, uh, we'll see what happens in, in the Senate and also on school choice. I, I think that at this point, I have accurately captured the sentiment uh, down in the Senate, and I just don't know that we're going to get anything down there. I, I hope so. But uh, I'm optimistic. But, you know, the lieutenant governor wields a lot of power in the Senate, and I think he's been on Gallo's program here a couple of weeks ago, and he didn't really show to me any indication that he was in favor of it, is the way I put it, um, the way I heard it, at least. So any any sort of expansion of education savings accounts. So I, I totally uh, disagree with him on that point, and I hope we can get something uh, done. And and his objection is very similar to what you heard Senator Horn express, which is, I'm just not for public money going to a private school. So we got on the ceasefire text line, somebody said, um, I, I can't find it now, but says, uh, you know, my money, uh, then I ought to be able to control where it goes. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be an issue of, okay, if that's to a private school. We're stepping aside for a break. Coming right back. Stay with us. FM Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well studio, we thank you so much for joining us. So, yeah, so Ben from Madison says line 61. And line 61, we're talking about this this, uh, resolution, House concurrent resolution. It gets into a little bit more detail. This is for the ballot measure process. Gets into a little bit more detail. And and what it says is, look, if... um, if you're going to put a measure out there that's going to cost money uh, and it has a substantial cost to the state, or and I don't know how they define substantial. That's a subjective term. There's no calculations included in the measure. Well, it's determined by the LBO, the Legislative Budget Office. Okay. Is that what it's... I didn't read further. Is that what it says? Yeah, that's line 66. Okay. So, I got you. I see it now. You're right. Thank you. So, uh, but that's... 
still somewhat subjective, but that's fine. You're, you're essentially charging a, a third party, and that third party is the one that, that deals with this more than anybody else in the whole state. However, I'll tell you this, though. I shouldn't say i tell you this, but I'll point this out. They're not economists. Right? So there is a, a piece, and, and that cannot be ignored when you think about this. And, and so even in, when they get questioned, as they did recently, about uh, our financial situation in the state, I'm talking about the LBO and those folks involved, who do great work, by the way. And I don't know if you know it, guys, a lot of times, especially towards the end of the session, that staff, they're up all night. You know that. It's, um, it's an unbelievable task that they have to piece all that together in a very short period of time. You're talking about a $6 billion, $6.5 billion budget. So, but the point is um, that you've got to consider a lot of different factors other than just, okay, it looks like right now this is how much we got coming in, this is how much we got going out. And sure, you've got to start with that. That's a baseline. And they would admit that. But there are a lot of other factors that go into play. And so it, it makes sense, Ben, that... Um, you know, you, you, you can't just put a measure out there, as we talked about earlier, that would just break the state, something you want to do. That wouldn't work. Nobody would support that. So there's some protections around that, which make a perfect sense. Um, I just brought up Medicaid expansion simply because it, there was an effort already underway uh, to by third parties to get a measure on the ballot uh, for the voters to either approve or, or reject. Simple as that, and I've seen proposals that would cover the state's portion. That's all. The state's portion of that. That's the only point I was trying to make. So, you know, the extent to which that would work through here, even if it didn't, I don't know, given the state's portion is $100 million, I don't know what the LBO would say about that being significant. Again, that's a bit subjective. But nonetheless... Uh, the proposals that... Well, it does say that the, quote, the chief legislative budget officer shall prepare a fiscal analysis of each initiative and each legislative alternative, and a summary of each fiscal analysis shall appear on the ballot. I see that. And, and so now you're hurting folks' heads when they go to vote on this stuff. Who pays attention to that? I mean, we've already heard complaints, have we not, about just the, the complex, rather lengthy language associated with even the medical marijuana deal. It was brutally confusing. I don't think I'm misrepresenting that, mischaracterizing that. We heard that from a lot of people as well, and that makes sense. I think the people have a right to know, okay, are we going to pay for whatever it may be? Well, it's because the vast majority of Mississippians aren't fluent in legalese and really shouldn't have to. Shouldn't have to be. I totally agree. But... Um, and so, and maybe this is intentional to make it a little difficult, and and uh, perhaps, and some people have actually said that. Oh, they were just trying to confuse people. And I don't know that that it was the case or not, but I think more than anything, it just kind of covers. You know, hey, look, you voted for this. We told you what it was going to do. If you become mad afterwards, for example, I think it's it's kind of that sort of deal. You, it's incumbent upon you to read it, you know, and try to understand. Of course, that has to be published ahead of time, so it's not like you don't have time. And if, and by the way, should we reinstate it? I'll make this commitment. Should we reinstate it? Uh, I'm talking about the ballot measure process, and uh, once we see the measure and all the detailed language and what it's going, to, what's going to appear on the ballot, we'll discuss it here and we'll get experts in to help us out with that, to inform. That's a commitment that certainly we could make here at Super Talking on Middays. 
Um, but nonetheless, it looks like this thing is headed to the Senate, having passed the House, and we'll see how it fares down there. I think it'll be a little different situation, but my gut feel is the just in general, the Senate's a little less on board with this than is the House. But we'll certainly see. Ben from Madison says, is there an easy explanation as to how we had a budget surplus in the late 90s? Yeah, it's just perfect alignment. talking about the federal. Perfect alignment of the stars, uh, I think, back then, uh, Ben. We had, of course, the uh, unbelievable economic growth with uh, the Internet uh, build-out. And uh, we also didn't have quite the dynamics we have today with respect to mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare, uh, Medicaid. We didn't have all the debt interest because we hadn't accumulated the debt that we have today, so I, I haven't looked it up, but the interest on the debt back in that time period, Rhino, I'm going to guess, was about $100 billion a year, talking about in the late 90s when we, had, when we were generating surpluses, whereas today it, it is uh, quickly approaching a trillion, 10x, and that's just because of all the money we've borrowed uh, since then. I, I don't, are you looking that up? I'm going to guess probably in that in that range. I, I could be off, but I don't know. Um, it's, it's just uh, just kind of piecing it together in my head there. But that I think that's what was going on. Now, President Trump has said that he's going to balance the budget and start paying down the debt by drilling oil. And I've not been able to figure out his approach there, and he may have something in mind I'm not aware of. I, I do think he is definitely energy-friendly, shall we say, whereas we have a president today that's not very friendly to uh, fossil fuels energy, for sure. And he's made it very clear, as the former president, that we're going to drill, baby, drill day one. By the way, the price of oil, you may be uh, aware already, is up to $77 a barrel today. So here we go. We, we fell under 70 not so long ago, and we're trending upward again. That's sure to impact the price at the pump. And this is really based on Mideast tensions and falling supplies here in the United States. It is kind of interesting to note that we are producing more oil in this country than we ever have uh, in our history, uh, significantly uh, more than we have historically. Uh, I should say that's maybe not significant, but it depends on your perspective. But almost a, uh, a million barrels more daily than we were short four years ago, and and uh, that's just a, a, a function of uh, demand and supply, and it, with prices elevated, honestly, uh, oil and gas producers are more inclined to, to uh, produce more because they get a higher price for it. And uh, they try to sort of make hay while the sun is shining, but as we've seen the price decline, um, inventories have fallen. And as that happens, the price starts to creep up again. You know, it's just a cat-and-mouse game that's going on there in the market, and they'll probably start producing more. I'm not exactly sure how the former president intends to uh, balance the budget, and um, which means that you've got to uh, you've got to eliminate this two trillion, roughly two trillion dollar deficit just by producing more oil. I, I don't. I don't really understand the relationship there and, and the interconnection. But he certainly made that clear as part of his platform. And I'm all for producing more oil and driving the cost down. I do think that will also have a marked effect on inflation. 
I don't see us returning to the prices that we all enjoyed in the 2020 time period before Joe Biden was elected president. I don't see that happening. I really don't see mortgage rates returning to that level as well. I, th- I think that's that's over. I think that was a short-term window. And in fact, if we do see that, it's, it's a result of interest rates being clawed back by the Fed. And if that happens, it's because we're experiencing a significant economic contraction. In other words, big-time recession, job layoffs, and so forth. I really don't see that happening at this point. Although I do think a friendlier regulatory framework, which we did enjoy under the former president, would in fact spur economic growth and I think would go a long way to uh, producing more and uh, supply-side economics is is where I stand on that and such so-called supply-side economics would I think go a long way towards curbing inflation and I do think uh, that he would be a good president in that regard. The current president we have is not about supply-side economics. He's a demand guy, and he thinks that we ought to do demand by just spending more money. And I think that is a bad approach. We're coming right back with the final segment of Middays next. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. We're back in the Element Well studio. Thanks for joining us. It was Andy and Tupelo that said about school choice where you heard the objection from Senator Horn, and I've I've heard Lieutenant Governor Hoseman also expressed uh, his objections, his concerns about uh, school choice where uh, public monies could be used as vouchers to fund education in private schools for students. Andy says, no, that's crazy. My tax is my child. And, you know, I support it because I think it would improve educational outcomes. I, I see it differently. Um, but I certainly get Andy's point. Uh, but I would I would just remind you, Andy, for what it's worth, and I'm not trying to be a confrontational that you elect people, right? That that you are responsible for spending your money. That's the way it works here. And I and I'm not discounting at all what you're saying here. Uh, I'm with you, and I and I support it, uh, the idea, and I agree with it. But because I think it would improve the quality of education and open up opportunities for a better education. So. Uh, for so many of our students that are locked in based on their address and, and poor situation. So I, I totally agree with you. And I, I think the thing there, Andy, is talk to your rep and your senator about that. Um, so Thomas and Greenwood, man, you're all hopped up on, on this uh, cell phone deal. By the way, it's, it's those phones are, are the minimum phones pretty much only available uh, for uh, local calls if there's any costs associated with calling outside. But all that's been eliminated, so it's extremely low cost. I'm not saying I, I support Ronald Reagan's idea of funding the uh, or creating this, these new programs, Lifeline and Link Up, for that purpose, but I don't see any move on the part of any Republicans to address that issue. It is a 
teeny tiny fraction of money. Of course, I know folks say it all adds up, but I'd rather us concern ourselves with, with big pots of money that are breaking us, that have caused us to be in debt by $34 trillion. And that's why I, I don't get too excited whenever I hear these uh, Congress uh, folks in Congress on, on the House and Senate side talking about, yeah, we're going to reduce spending off or the bill to reduce this much, and then it's like, okay, well, what about the other 99.9% that you're not touching? When you get to offer something there that would be meaningful and provide uh, more benefit, and it just doesn't seem like that's happening. Willis in Hattiesburg says the powers to be want to see oil up around 85 bucks a barrel. I think, the, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that not Saudi Arabia's and OPEC's kind of stated goal, Rhino? They want to see it around 80 in that range. And look, they control the market and the supply, and, and, um, and it is a global commodity, as we've said. So I, I just wonder if we're going to get back to those days when we all remember not too long ago we were paying a lot less uh, for gas because the price of oil had declined significantly. So I, I just don't know if, if that's possible. Um, certainly, uh, I'm for what President Trump wants to do, which is easing the restrictions and just ending the war on fossil fuels, which we, we've heard almost daily from the Biden administration and Democrats and, uh, in Congress, and just let the market sort that out. I totally agree with that. Uh, whether or not that's a path to balancing the budget and paying down the debt, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand those mechanics, and perhaps the president has something in mind that he's just not articulated yet, but uh, no doubt about it. Uh, meanwhile, the, the Biden administration continues to attack the fossil fuels industry, uh, as do numerous states. That uh, which, What's the latest state I saw a couple of days ago, Rhino, that now – is considering legislation that would uh, also prohibit um, any new structures, businesses, or residences built in that state from having uh, natural gas connections. We've already had that, I think, in the city of New York and in parts of California. Oh, that was Chicago. Chicago, that's right. Thank you, thank you. I mean, like, you've got a billion problems to deal with in the city of Chicago. Let's start with crime, and that's what you're worried about. It's unbelievable these, uh, they these, also want to hold a vote on a ceasefire. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, so That's can, the ultimate in irony. Oh, yes, exactly. You mean, so right outside the door, shots are being fired. The door uh, to the room where these people are that are wanting to pass this ceasefire resolution. Man, it's just, the irony is incredible, as you said, but uh, uh, just the lunacy of that just is preposterous. You've got major problems in your city, plaguing your city, chief of which is crime and homelessness and drugs and blight, and that's what you're concerned about? A ceasefire? We're talking about a ceasefire and obviously the Israeli-Gaza-Hamas conflict. That's what they're concerned about. Just a bunch of political hacks is what they are, and of course, a genuflecting all in at the altar of climate change. Unbelievable. I mean, I just can't make it up, as they say. Wow, wow, wow. So no win with Medicare and Medicaid, but we're steady putting money back in a rainy day fund. There's nothing to do with Medicare, whoever sent this to us. what The state's not involved in Medicare. Don't know what they're talking about. 
missing four. Well, we're out of here today, back in the Element Well studio tomorrow. Until then, please stay safe and God bless. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.